we've been uh, going through the Gospel of Mark now for some time. Uh, I'm loving it. I hope it has been meaningful to you. And there's one thing that I have noticed as I've been studying this Gospel uh, more deeply than ever before in my life, and that is that at least up to this point, Mark, who put together this story of Jesus' life, loves to present things about Jesus in sets of four. And it's just, a, it's an interesting thing that he does. So uh, several weeks ago, we did this series that we called The Four Whys, because there were these four stories where Jesus uh, breaks the rules, does things you wouldn't expect him to do. And people literally ask, why did he say that? Why is he acting like that? Why are they doing that? There's four whys in a row, and they teach us about who Jesus is. For the last couple of weeks, we looked at Mark chapter 4, which has four parables of Mark. And in those four parables, we learn about Jesus' message and his kingdom, and he gives us four pictures. It's a set of four. Jesus didn't just give four parables, but Mark chooses four and gives them to us. And right after that, starting at the end of Mark chapter 4 and through Mark chapter 5, Mark gives us four more stories that I am calling the four wows. All right, sorry for those who don't like cheesy things, but for the rest of you, you're welcome. The four wows. What happens in these passages? Well, first, Jesus calms a storm. Then Jesus goes and he delivers a man from a whole army of demons. And then there's this woman with, the, with an issue of bleeding, hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging that's been lasting her whole life. He heals her almost by accident. And then he raises a little girl from the dead. These are four of the most dramatic miracles in the Gospel of Mark, excluding, of course, Jesus' own resurrection. And Mark presents them back to back to back so that we can see something about Jesus, grasp something about Jesus. So we're going to look at the first two of the wows today in Mark 4:35 to 5:20. Let's listen to the scripture together. On that day, when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, "Let's go across to the other side of the lake." So, after leaving the crowd, they took him along just as he was in the boat, and other boats were with him. Now, a great windstorm developed, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was nearly swamped. But he was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. They woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're about to die? So he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Be quiet, calm down. Then the wind stopped. And it was dead calm. And he said to them, Why are you cowardly? Do you still not have faith? They were overwhelmed by fear and said to one another, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. So they came to the other side of the lake, to the region of the Gerasenes. Just as Jesus was getting out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came from the tombs and met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For his hands and feet had often been bound with chains and shackles, 
but he had torn the the chains apart and broken the shackles in pieces. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Each night and every day among the tombs and in the mountains, he would cry out and cut himself with the stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him. Then he cried out with a loud voice, Leave me alone, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. I implore you, by God, do not torment me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of that man, you unclean spirit. Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, My name is Legion, for we are many. He begged Jesus repeatedly not to send them out of the region. There on the hillside, a great herd of pigs was feeding, and the demonic spirits begged him, Send us into the pigs. Let us enter them. Jesus gave them permission, so the unclean spirits came out and went into the pigs. Then the herd rushed down the steep slope into the lake, and about 2,000 were drowned in the lake. Now the herdsmen ran off and spread the news in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. They came to see Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man sitting there, clothed in his, and in his right mind, the one who had the legion, and they were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the demon-possessed man reported it, and they also told about the pigs. Then they began to beg Jesus to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed asked if he could go with him. But Jesus did not permit him to do so. Instead, he said to him, Go to your home and to your people and tell them what the Lord has done for you, that he had mercy on you. So he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis what Jesus had done for him. And all were amazed. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment, uh, would you speak to us about your word? Lord, these stories are so big, so wild, that they challenge our belief. They feel fantastic. And I pray, Lord, that you would make us like the man freed from the demons and not like anyone else in these stories. That upon experiencing your power, we would, like him, say, let me follow you. Let me come with you. And then we would obey whatever it is that you give us to do. Lord, help us to understand, help us to believe, help us to trust. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, it's probably no secret, church, that I, uh, along with, by the way, millions and millions of other people, have a fascination with hero stories and hero movies. And as I was thinking about it in light of this sermon, I think I love those Because in those stories, your horizon of what's possible is altered, even just 
even if just for the two-hour movie, you begin to taste and see what it's like when things that used to be impossible are possible now. Consider one of the classic original superhero movies. In 1978, we got Superman, the classic Superman movie. And in that movie, Superman is, just like in all the other Superman movies, is in love with Lois Lane. And Lois Lane, in that movie, dies in a car crash. And Superman is so distraught that he flies out and flies in reverse around the planet to make the Earth turn and re go spin the other direction. And somehow that turns back time, back to before Lois Lane dies in the crash, and he's able to prevent the crash. He changes the horizons of what's possible. Or maybe people in my generation would be more familiar with, with uh, the cult classic, the Matrix, and there's that great scene at the end where Neo begins to believe that he is the one, and he understands that just with a thought, he can control everything in this digital world, and he just holds out his hand, and the bullets stop. Those are great stories. They're fantastic. They excite us. These stories in Mark chapter 4 and 5, they permanently and literally alter the horizon of what's possible. What thrills the masses so much, I think, in movies like The Matrix is really at the heart of it, believing the possibility that death itself is not an unsolvable problem that the things that we feel like are impossible are actually possible. And that is what Jesus offers us in these passages. In the first story, we have the storm at sea. And Jesus is in a boat that has a lot of fishermen who have fished on the Sea of Galilee many times. They faced many storms. And yet in this storm, they have met their match and they're sure they're going to die. Water through the ages has been a symbol of chaos and death. At a certain point, hum humanity has had to recognize that we cannot control the power of water. Ancient civilizations recognized that when the river or lake or ocean rose up, that was it. Death was coming. Uh, civilization was ruined as we knew it. And that has continued on into the present. Many of us remember the terrible tsunami in 2004 when an earthquake in the Indian Ocean sent a giant wave into Indonesia. Like 230,000 people died. Many were lost. Entire villages were destroyed. And so, gosh, we over here saw that happening, and it was terrifying, but also we kind of felt like, well, it's, it's far away from us. But friends, water destroying things isn't as far away from us as we think. After all, we're having church virtually right now because water, frozen water, fell out of the sky and made everything stop. But in 1965, the waters rose up right here in town. This is Littleton, you guys. 
This is the Platte River flooding in 1965. Every bridge between Littleton and Colfax was destroyed. $540 million of damage. About 25 people died. This happened right here in our backyard. Okay, so maybe that was back then. Maybe Indonesia is third world country. Oh, no. This here is a picture from 2018. When a rainstorm hit the town of Mont Montecito, which is outside of Santa Barbara, and arguably the wealthiest community in North America, mudslides began and they saturated everything. This is Highway 101, buried in mud. Mansions and cars and people were swept away. When the waters rise, we experience how powerless we are. In Genesis chapter one, we read, that um, we read in Genesis chapter one that the spirit hovers over the waters. He's controlling the chaos and out of the chaos he creates. The disciples are terrified. Jesus, don't you care we're gonna die? And Jesus gets up and speaks to the storm as if it's a teenager at the library making too much noise. Shh. And it stops. I, I, the commentators that I read, they all noticed one thing. The, the storm stops and that's one thing. But the laws of physics dictate that the waves would have kept going for hours. It would have taken the sea a long time to calm down, even if the storm instantly stopped. And yet the waves instantly stop too. All is peace. And so they get to the other side and they meet this man. This man who cannot be chained or bound. I want, I mean, can you the, just put yourself in the disciples' shoes here? How long did this boat ride take? Did they, have, did they have time to catch their breath on the still sea? Did they sail on in terrified silence after the ocean stopped? Because ready or not, an equally terrifying storm awaited them on the shore. The far side of the Sea of Galilee was for these guys the other side of the tracks. That's where the Gentiles lived. There's a tomb over there. There's the Decapolis. It's a, it's a Roman stronghold. This is not a place that Jewish men want to go. They don't want to go there. There's people raising pigs over there. The tomb means that everything there, the, practically the air you breathe is unclean. You will become impure, ceremonially unclean, just by stepping ashore. And that's where Jesus goes. And they meet this man. Did you hear the description of him? The chains can't bind him. He roams around the tombs night and day. He's a danger to himself and others. And when he says what his problem is, my name is Legion, for we are many. We've got to wrap our minds around that. A legion of Roman soldiers had 5,600 soldiers in it. And that's the frame of reference. This man is saying that he has thousands of demons. When I was in seminary and in college studying theology, you know, theologians poke fun at ourselves. We say, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? But this is real. How many demons can cram into one human life, into one human body? 
Apparently the number is much bigger than you'd ever want to allow yourself to believe. It is a terrifying reality, and yet our experience of this terrifying reality is not all that unfamiliar. We know too many stories of dictators who kill millions, cult leaders le uh, leading their people into mass suicide, and everyday acts of abject envy or selfishness or socio sociopathic behavior that bends our brains and terrifies us. It is all too familiar. With these dramatic things, you might expect a dramatic response. That's what the movies do. When there's a great villain, the hero has to rise up and against all odds fight it. But there's no drama in the way Jesus defeats these things. There's, there's no storyline at all. Be quiet, hush, stop. Get out of them. For some reason, Jesus has a little negotiation time with the man and the demons go into a herd of pigs. It's interesting when they go into the herd of pigs, there's 2,000 pigs, it says, and they, they all die. Well, this destroys the livelihood of some Gentile pig farmer there. Now, some commentators speculate that because of there was, that was a Roman uh, army stronghold that they were probably raising those pigs to feed the Roman army, and somehow Jesus was doing some sort of, you know, sanctions to make the Roman army hungry, but we get nothing like that in the story. In fact, the silence is deafening about these, these pigs. The people are terrified. They've seen that Jesus has ruined the livelihood of these farmers, and they say, leave, please leave. But Jesus doesn't even shrug his shoulders at it, and Mark makes no mention of it. And trying to wrap my mind around this, I came across this from, from New Testament scholar James Edwards. Ironically, he says, both Jesus and Mark pass over the obvious plight of the swine herds without comment. As it stands, the story directs undivided attention to the rescue of one man from a tragic and torturous fate. Here, perhaps, is the essential moral of the miracle surpassing even the dilemma of the loss of pigs. In the eyes of Jesus, the rescue and restoration of one person is more important than vast capital assets. Compared to the redemption of a human being, the loss of the swine herds, considerable though it is, does not rate mentioning. Wow. This one man's life is more valuable to Jesus than this giant, massive cost for the swine herds. I was trying to put this into scale of my own life, the experience of this church. And obviously we're thinking about moving right now, and we know that our move is likely going to cost this church financially more than anything has ever cost this church at one time. The renovation costs, the moving costs, at least more than we've ever had to pay. And it's kind of scary to me thinking about that amount of expense. And I see this story and, and I just think back on our last five years. We've been here in the Life Center 
for five years. In that time, the entire uh, ministry, the entire uh, work of this church, every dollar that we've had to spend since we moved into this building has totaled just over $1.5 million. So we've spent $1.5 million in, in five and a half years right here. And if I pick out just one of the many things that have happened in this space, I kind of begin to understand the way Jesus thinks. If I think about a man named Tom Swallow, who died a couple years ago. Tom came in quiet, sick, dying of cancer, made a profession of faith, was baptized here in this room, found a family in this church. Was that worth $1.5 million? I think of several brothers, hopefully guys you're watching this, who spent many years in prison before coming to be a part of this church, before getting out. And we have had the privilege to be a family and a community and friends and to watch these guys uh, get established and, and uh, thrive. What a privilege. Is that worth $1.5 million? I think about the people that we've gotten to invest in and they've been sent on to other ministry efforts. I think about Matt Graham pastoring a church in Fort Collins, that we got to invest in Matt and raise him up and challenge him and encourage him and walk him through the ordination um, journey. And now he's serving. Friends, every one of these, any one of them, I think it's absolutely worth it. And that's how Jesus thinks. That's how Jesus thinks in this passage. And yet the way Jesus does things scares us. Notice in these stories that there's a terrifying situation. The storm is terrifying. They think they're going to die. The demons are terrifying. Nobody goes near the, the tombs. No one can chain this man. These things are terrifying. And yet after Jesus fixes it, the people in the story are more afraid than they were before. The language describing their fear is more dramatic afterward than it was beforehand. How will we respond when we see the power of God? How have you seen it in your life and how did you respond? I can think of experiences in, in my own life when I was doing junior high ministry in this church and, and uh, one of the leaders is stung by a wasp and her foot is swelling up and we lay hands on her and pray for her and, and then we set her off to the side and continue on with the J-High games and then she comes back in the game, her foot is completely fine and I remember I barely slept that night. Not because I was so excited but because I was so terrified that the power of God, that this thing that we talk about all the time so much that we get used to it, it poked its finger through into my daily life. I think of a time as a college student when uh, serving in New York City on, on a short mission trip uh, just after 9-11 in the months after, and we were serving with one particular group, and there was a lot of messy stuff there, and my entire team that I was there with, eight of us, we all, as we're on the subway home, we were all getting sick. We all had like, like terrible headaches, and people were vomiting into their bags and whatever else. It was this 
gross, terrible thing. And one of the leaders of the group says, you guys, I think that this is a spiritual attack and we did a couple things to pray and, and to separate ourselves from um, the sort of the source of the spiritual attack. And in a moment, all eight of us were fine. How will we respond when that happens? We were terrified. We were terrified. I think so often we expect to be uh, amazed and overjoyed when the power of God shows up. And when it really does, it shakes us to our core. You know, this first story it, uh, it's not the first time a story like this has happened in the Bible, this story about the storm at sea. In fact, every detail of this story e either perfectly mirrors or is perfectly the opposite of something that happened in the Old Testament to a man named Jonah. Now, you might know the story of Jonah because he's a guy who gets swallowed by a giant fish and survives, and you've heard it in children's ministry. <laughs> But at the beginning of Jonah, God tells Jonah to go to the other side of the tracks, to Gentile territory, and Jonah flees, and he gets on a boat, and he goes the opposite direction. So that's perfectly opposite from this story. But then Jonah is sleeping in the boat when a storm overwhelms the boat, and the sailors are terrified, and they come and ask Jonah, why are you sleeping? And Jonah has the solution. Throw me overboard. And as soon as they do, everything stops, and the sailors are terrified. They're terrified. How will you respond when you see the power of God? Most people, James Edwards says, if they were asked, would probably say that they would like to see a manifestation of God. But this story is a cold shower for such religious pipe dreams. Sorry about the typos here. <laughs> when God manifests himself in Jesus... Most people ask him to leave. Jesus is the anti-Jonah. He goes toward the scary people. He goes to Levi's house. He goes into the storm. He goes into the tombs. In a few chapters, when Mark uh, when, when Peter confesses in Mark chapter 8 that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus will say, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's a strange way to say it. Gates can't attack anyone. The only way you're confronting a gate is if you're trying to attack something. Jesus goes into the pit of hell. That's his mission. He goes toward the mess, toward the terrifying thing. How will we respond? All of these stories are built up to put us hopefully in the place of the man set free. He is like a calm sea, dressed and in his right mind, sitting at Jesus' feet. And when everyone else wants Jesus to leave, he says, please let me come with you. Jesus has bigger plans for him. Go and tell everyone in your town how much the Lord has done for you. How, how much mercy he has shown to you. In the story of Jonah, the way to stop the storm 
is Jonah has to be sacrificed. He has to be thrown overboard. You might think that the story in Mark chapter 4 is different. Jesus didn't have to be thrown out of the boat. He just had to speak. But if we pan out a little bit, the story of Jesus is actually the same. The overwhelming storm of sin and death requires that Jesus be thrown overboard. That's the story of the cross. That's what we're preparing to remember in a couple weeks. That Jesus will be abandoned by his friends, these same guys in the boat with him. And he'll be swallowed up by death. And when he does that, the sky goes dark, the curtain tears, and the storm is broken. The legion of demons flees, and the victory of Jesus is ours. How will you respond? Let's pray. Father, hearing these stories and talking about them does hardly anything to prepare us for the power of God. But I am asking right now in the midst of this big snowstorm, you would allow us to experience your presence and power that every home of everyone who is watching this right now would experience the presence and power of God and that we would, by your grace, because we've seen these stories, that we would choose to set aside the fear that is greater than the fear of death and say to you, let me come with you. Let me be with you. Lord, we believe. We need your help for our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.